You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, first the story of the week, the Panama Papers. The publication of the details of the affairs of Mossack Fonseca by a consortium of journalists that includes the Irish Times has sent ripples around the world. The Icelandic Prime Minister is teetering. Another nail has been hammered into the Brazil's government coffin. Twelve government and state leaders have been linked through family and cronies, going right to the top of Russia and China too, where the authorities have predictably clamped down or threatened action against journalists. China has closed down all references on its internet, not only to Xi Jinping and his family, but in solidarity with corrupt tyrants all over the world. Also, references to Vladimir Putin have been closed down. And talking of corrupt leaders, South Africa's Jacob Zuma is under severe pressure to resign once again, following a court ruling that he should reimburse the state for spending on his luxury compound, but the ANC is standing by him. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'll be joined by our correspondents in Central Europe, China and South Africa, Dan McLaughlin, Clifford Coonan and Bill Corcoran. It's no surprise to anyone that Messrs Putin and Xi Jinping are rich beyond avarice. One estimate in 2007 put, put Putin's fortune at $40 billion. But showing the connections between these leaders and indeed other leaders and their money has been difficult until now. The leaked Panama Papers have opened this up wide. Dan, it's not that Putin has all this money, but friends and family, notably a cellist called Sergei Roldukin, who's a close Putin friend, and indeed introduced him to his wife. Uh, the, these are the people who have the billions that are in the Mossack Fonseca uh, companies. That's right. Well, the Kremlin was very, very quick to point out uh, when the, the leaks from the papers were released that, um, that Putin's name is not mentioned anywhere in these papers. But lots of people who were already familiar with as very close friends of Putin, friends going back decades, back to his days in St. Petersburg, um, they do appear, and companies linked to them, controlled by them, appear uh, all over these papers. Um, people like Yuri Kovalchuk, people like Arkady Rotenberg, they've become extremely wealthy in the years that Putin has been president. But the name of Sergei Roldugin was a surprise. Um, uh, even Russian experts, uh, they were aware of this guy. There were stories from a few years ago uh, in which Roldugin explained how they had become friends back in 1977, um, how he had introduced Putin to his future wife, and how he had been, um, he was God, godfather for Putin's eldest daughter. Um, but he was never associated with the wealth that is alleged to be connected to Putin. This has changed dramatically with these Panama Papers. And Roldugin, who, as you said, is a, is a cellist and conductor for, uh, among others, the Marinsky, the, the orchestra at the Marinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg, um, is connected to several companies mentioned in the papers um, and seem, the companies that seem to be in control of, of considerable wealth, uh, wealth that has been uh, accumulated through very mysterious means, strange deals that can't really be explained, uh, loans at extremely low interest, and lots of suspicious activity. Um, and he, he is really the, the biggest new name to come out of these papers at the moment. I mean, it's certainly the case that a, a professional musician uh, wouldn't expect to, to be a billionaire. Absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, 
particularly in Russia, if you like. I mean, the, there's a great standard of, of classical music there, but um, it's an extremely impecunious trade. Very few musicians make any money. Roldugin, allegedly at least, uh, is ext has become extremely wealthy through these various deals. Companies that he's linked with have been, uh, according to the Panama Papers, connected with the purchase of yacht, with of a, at least one yacht, um, with the purchase of a, a, an extremely fancy ski resort close to St. Petersburg, at which uh, one of Putin's daughters was, was married. So there are lots of questions to be answered um, by lots of people very closely connected to Putin, uh, not least of whom is Israel, Israel Dugin. But the line that we're getting is the standard line at the moment that we've heard from the Kremlin in previous scandals, that this is an anti-Russian and an anti Putin specifically plot orchestrated by the United States. How does Putin, if he ever bothers to, explain his wealth? I mean, this is a man whose entire career has been either in the, the KGB or in, in politics. Where would he have earned any significant amounts of money? Well, it's extremely, it, it's proved extremely hard so far for investigators, and there seem to be an increasing number of investigations taking place into Putin's alleged wealth. Um, it's been very hard to actually to, to pin anything onto him. Um, people who've investigated this very closely say that um, even in conversations between people who are extremely close to Putin and who allegedly deal with his wealth, they never mention him by name. They refer to him by various pseudonyms, or they may even just, uh, strange as it sounds, raise a finger to raise a finger heavenwards to kind of indicate the guy who's at the very top of the pyramid. Um, so it's very hard to find, uh, I mean, even with these Panama Papers, as I said, Putin's name is not mentioned anywhere, but accusations go back a long, long way um, to the days when he was, originally when he left the KGB, he, he first entered politics in, um, in City Hall in St. Petersburg. Um, and that was in the 90s, the early 90s, a time that was absolutely chaotic, a time when lots of assets were changing hands in very, very mysterious and murky ways, ways that are still unexplained today. And he was involved at the time in um, doing deals between the city administration and foreign investors, uh, deals that could be extremely lucrative. Now, people like Roldugin, people like the other people that I mentioned, Arkady Rotenberg, Yuri Kovalchuk, there are lots of others who've made millions and billions in the years while Putin is in power. They have connections with him going right back to those early days. The bank that Kovalchuk is, uh, controls, called Bank Rossiya, goes all the way back to those days. So these allegations reach back a long, long way into Putin's past, and they involve a great number of people who are extremely close to him. But there isn't, you could still argue, a smoking gun that connects Putin directly by name to um, the huge funds that are allegedly controlled by people very close to him or even controlled on his behalf by people very close to him. Now, the authorities are blaming what they call Putinophobia. And, and interestingly, the spokesman who came up with the phrase has also been named in the leak as, as having a substantial uh, investments uh, looked after by Mossack Fonseca. But researching Putin is a dangerous business for journalists, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, people, um, you know, over 20 years have have um, met very grisly fates. Uh, people who've investigated him very closely and have criticized him very strongly. I mean, the, the names that are best known are people like Alexander Litvinenko, of course, in London. 
uh, Anna Politkovskaya, who was killed in her flat in, in, in Moscow. But there are many others as well. There are people who've invested, investigated many things that Putin has been involved in uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader. Um, politicians who have been involved in various um, commissions and investigations who have also died in strange circumstances. Um, certainly in Russia, the reaction has been in the mainstream media, um, they, they've tried to brush this off. Um, as we know, the, the, most of the, main, the, the mainstream media in Russia is basically Kremlin-controlled, state-controlled. There has been very little mention of this. What mention of this uh, there has been has focused on the fact that Putin is not named specifically and also on these allegations uh, voiced primarily by the man you mentioned there, Putin's chief spokesman, um, uh, Dmitry Peskov. He has said that this is a case of Russophobia, a case of Putinophobia. He has said that lots of the journalists and investigators involved in the Panama Papers investigation and others, uh, other previous ones that have raised similar uh, questions about Putin's wealth are linked to the American State Department and uh, the CIA. So that's the clear line taken by Russia that this is part of a, a widening, intensifying smear campaign against the Russian authorities and Putin in particular. David Kuhn, uh, journalists in China uh, probing such issues are also on dangerous ground. I believe the New York Times had a correspondent thrown out of the country. That's right. Well, basically, um, the New York Times, uh, they had, uh, they, what they've had problems with getting visas issued. Um, one of their correspondents, Mike Forsyth, when he was working for um, Bloomberg, uh, was instrumental in reporting um, on Xi Jinping's family and, uh, and their wealth. And the facts that he discovered during those reports for Bloomberg, for that report for Bloomberg, um, are actually similar to the ones that have come out in, in, the, in the Panama Papers. Um, but what the Panama Papers add to that information is the fact that there were, there were shell companies and offshore, um, offshore activities involved. Um, and the new dimension also that the Panama Papers bring are um, Zhang Gaoli and uh, Liu Yinshan, who are two other very senior figures in the Communist Party, who, intrigue upon intrigue, are, happen to be arch rivals of Xi Jinping. So what a lot of people um, who are following this story now see is that the Xi Jinping stuff we kind of knew already about the family being involved and about his sister and his brother-in-law um, and uh, the Boshi Lai stuff we knew about. Um, but what's interesting now is the fact that, that his rivals are also involved. So um, what everyone has suspected has been a faction fight in China is now taking on a new dimension um, because Xi and his rivals seem to be embroiled in these Panama Papers. It seems that up to eight former or current members of the Politburo are being named in, the, in these papers. That's right. And um, it's really, you know, it's as, as, as I'm saying, it takes all aspects of, it, it's taking in all aspects of, of, the, uh, of the party. And, and the fact that there's eight uh, such senior members named, um, we don't know how much is going to, how much more is going to emerge over the coming weeks uh, and one point you mentioned about journalists trying to investigate this in China, um, you know, they've got their work cut out for them. Um, they're facing a lot of difficulties there. Um, you know, that, that basically there's been a, a clampdown on, on what they, they can report. Yes, and, and uh, a lot of the Chinese journalists themselves are likely to lose jobs if they, if they insist on reporting it. And papers may be taken over uh, by the party. 
That's right. I mean, what we saw today was that the Global Times, which is published by the same group that publishes the People's Daily, which is the official newspaper of the of the Communist Party, um, they came out today saying that it was uh, um, that it was a, basically an anti a Western conspiracy against non-Western superpowers. Um, and in this, they they singled out Putin um, as being under attack. Um, Putin is is very popular in China, and he's um, one thing that people, you know, I think when people think of Xi Jinping looking for role models around the world, I think they sometimes tend to assume that it's going to be um, an American model. But actually, his favorite, probably one of his favorite leaders, would be Putin. You know, a strong man, um, beloved of the people, with a with a big with an interest in, um, you know, instability um, at all costs, you know, and maintaining borders and things like that. So. Um, so that's the official line coming out in the media is that this is a, a conspiracy against that kind of authoritarian rule that that you see in both Russia and and in China. Although China, of course, wasn't mentioned um, in any way in any of the reporting. And whenever you click on any of these websites to find out about the Panama Papers, you get the the standard um, the the standard response, which is that this cannot be opened because it may be in contravention of Chinese law. And indeed, one of the uh, documents uh, that leaked from from a Chinese security source apparently says that there is going to be a very firm crackdown if if anything uh, gets out. Yeah, I mean that's it. I mean they're under so much pressure at the moment anyway in China because this whole anti-corruption um, crackdown that that Xi Jinping has overseen has also uh, had a huge um, impact on the media. Um, shortly before Chinese New Year, uh, Xi Jinping went to the three main state media and um, and basically said that, you know, everything they do needs to serve the party um, and that that should be its focus. So what you've seen are people, you know, you've seen some senior editors leave their posts in advance of what they expect are going to be even more punitive measures. So something like the Panama Papers is not going to make uh, our an issue like the Panama Papers is not going to make their lives any easier and it's going to feed into this into this crackdown on the media. And tell me now, how does Xi Jinping or, or people around him, how do they explain uh, their family's wealth uh, or do they simply not refer to it at all? They don't refer to it at all, basically. Um, it's not mentioned. Um, it's kind of known. Um, it, there are some things on social media. It's one of these things that seems to almost get around by word of mouth. I mean, the former, pre- the former premier, um, um, he, Wen Jiabao, his wife was in charge of the Chinese Jewelry Association, and she was well known as having quite a lot of money. And that, you know, Wen Jiabao, although he didn't have any money, his family were very wealthy, and everyone kind of knew this. And um, it's the same thing that no one believes that Xi Jinping personally has has any um, money, even though you know he's obviously um, his daughter went to Harvard, and you know this, he has some of the some of the ben- Benefits that that having wealth would would involve, but then his wife was also a very famous opera singer, and she would have had, have had money. So it's very difficult to to pinpoint uh, things there, but um, or to pin anything to him himself. But um, the story um, that you hear in China is that Xi Jinping was ring fenced about 15 years ago when it was decided that he was going to be the leader of the Communist Party. Um, was that he was ring fenced? He was told that he could. You know, he was just going to focus on the political aspect, and that his family had to act with discretion. But um, it's very difficult to get everyone to act with discretion. You know, particularly when um, you know his sister and his brother-in-law have been very active in in 
financial areas um, and, uh, you know, they haven't explicitly used their links with Xi Jinping as far as anyone can tell. But um, there's always the association because Chinese families in many cases, particularly elite families, work like small corporations where everyone kind of helps each other and, um, you know, influence and own having influence is, is hugely important in terms of getting access and, and getting things done and getting things through the bureaucracy. So um, while no one has directly linked anything to Xi Jinping, um, there's certainly quite a lot known, it seems to be, among the general populace about the fact that, you know, his family do have money. And is there any reaction that you can see uh, among ordinary people to the the fact that the, this information is presumably is out there, word of mouth? And is there any anger, any, any um, response at all? Well, um, there isn't really. I mean, it has been very well muzzled. Um, Xi Jinping is also hugely popular in China. Um, the anti-corruption campaign is very popular, has made him very popular among ordinary people who have felt for years that they're being fleeced by, by corrupt communist cadres. Um, and, and it has been a very wide-ranging clampdown. And you've seen whole areas of public life that have changed. And that's, that's very important to recognize, I think. Um, I think there's a feeling that... Um, no one sees, you know, use peddling influence or, you know, as long as nothing is directly linked to Xi Jinping. Um, I don't think people really get outraged about it. Um, certainly not as long as people's lives seem to be improving under under Xi Jinping and the and the graft campaign, anti-graft campaign is going on. So there hasn't been anything like the, the widespread reaction that you would expect. Um, so and there is a kind of an understanding that people will kind of, um, you know, that, they, they can make some uh, money under these, uh, or their families can can gain from, from being in power. That There's almost a feeling, perhaps, that if they didn't do it, maybe there'd be something, maybe, you know, weak about them or something. I don't know. It's, it's kind of, this yeah. is all, you know, as much speculation from observation as anything. But uh, that seems to be the feeling. One of the other names mentioned in the Mossack uh, Fonseca uh, inquiries, uh, Dan, is is that of Petro Poroshenko, the Prime Minister of Ukraine. We already knew he was a billionaire, so it's hardly surprising that he's awash with money. But but how do offshore holdings tally with his crackdown on corruption? Um, they sit extremely badly with what he claims to be trying to do in Ukraine at the moment. Um, Poroshenko became president after the, the Maidan revolution uh, of winter 2013-14, which was, above all, um, an attempt by uh, people across Ukraine to try and transform the country and make it, above all, a less corrupt place, a, a fairer place, a place where the rule of law applies to everyone. Um, and the richest people and the most powerful people can also be brought to book for um, their various crimes and misdemeanors. Um, Poroshenko claims to be still be championing this anti-corruption drive. But as you said, he's an extremely wealthy man. He's the sixth richest in Ukraine by the latest count uh, done by Forbes magazine, which was released recently. Even in the last year, according to Forbes, he has um, become $100 million wealthier than last year. This is at a time when you, most Ukrainians are doing extremely badly, struggling to get through an economic crisis, struggling to survive the conflict backed by Russia in the east, the annexation of Crimea, and so on. Um, and now we discover that um, Poroshenko has um, 
tried to, to well, he set up funds, basically, um, which appear to have been intended to um, to take over assets that he controls and to put them in to, to put them under British Virgin Islands jurisdiction, which, as we know, is an extremely low has extremely low tax corporate tax rates. Um, Poroshenko insists, or rather, his his lawyers and his accountants insist that these measures were taken actually as part of his attempt to place his uh, funds under um, at, sort of outside his control to put them in the hands of a, of a blind trust, which he could not touch. So he insists that this is part of him trying to basically distance himself from his main uh, financial assets. However, he did this in 2014. At least one of the companies was established in summer 2014 when he was already president. And anti-corruption groups here in Ukraine do say that um, according to the law, he should have declared. It's not perhaps he should not have even have been able to create a company while being president. If he did, he should at the very least have mentioned it in his financial statements. These companies do not appear in any of Poroshenko's financial statements. So clearly, um, although his team insists that he did not do anything illegal, many people here claim that he did. Um, perform an illegal act by creating those firms and by not declaring them. And certainly, this, these actions do not tally with the spirit of his supposed anti-corruption drive, which is facing all kinds of problems anyway. There's a crisis in the, in the prosecution service at the moment. We don't have a, a prosecutor general because the last guy was sacked. And many people who supported the revolution here claim that the corruption drive has absolutely failed to tackle corruption at the top level. And people now see this and they say that Poroshenko is a prime example of this. And how can a person who is tarnished by these allegations continue to claim to be the chief anti-corruption crusader in the country? So very, very tough times for him now. Thank you very much, Clifford and Dan. You're listening to The Irish Times. Jacob Zuma, a veteran of the struggle against apartheid, became president of South Africa in May 2009. Since then, he's been an endless source of controversy, partly allegations of incompetence, notably over the economy, partly cronyism and corruption, but also a long-running row about his luxurious compound at Nkandla, upgraded at a cost of $16 million to the state. Bill Corcoran, it's a pretty luxurious pad. Indeed it is. Um... Nkandla is actually a village in KwaZulu-Natal province, um, a very rural area where Jacob Zuma hails from. Originally, it was only four or five sort of rendezvous-type um, uh, buildings in the compound, but since um, he had his upgrade, which uh, the public protector, which is a constitutionally um, established watchdog body for corruption, um, did an assessment on it. Uh, the, the upgrade came to in the region of 14 million euros. Um, it was meant to be for purely um, security related uh, upgrades, but upon uh, the, uh, following the, uh, the investigation, she was able to establish that um, the money that came from the public purse went to pay for uh, uh, buildings, guest buildings, um, a cattle kraal, a helipad, uh, a swimming pool a chicken run, um, paving throughout the compound, which now has grown hugely um, across the, the, the land that his buildings are, are all based around. So that's where um, the, um, the public protector came in. She was um, brought in to assess what was going on there. 
Um, Zuma has always denied that uh, he should pay back any of the money. Um, he believes that um, he had nothing really to do with the, the work that was um, being done. It was done on the set of the Public Works Department, so any blame would be um, with the Public Works and with the, uh, the contractors who hugely inflated the cost of doing the, the, the building. So he um, then challenged the Public Protector's findings, which she found that he should pay back a reasonable portion of the cost of um, the non-security upgrades. He challenged this um, all the way, uh, wouldn't do it, got two government departments to do separate um, investigations of their own, and they both exonerated him and found that he had um, no obligation to, to pay anything. Yet the, the opposition parties, especially um, Julius Milleben's economic freedom um, fighters, they wouldn't take this. So they went to the Constitutional Court last August and very surprisingly, they were they were given leave to take their case. It's apparently not um, not a very um, um, common thing for them to do in these kind of circumstances to allow individuals um, in, uh, do this sort of thing. But um, the court case, um, constitutional court case, was heard on February sixteenth. Um, ahead of that, Azuma had tried to. Um, his lawyers knew that he hadn't got a leg to stand on, basically. So then he said that he would pay back. Uh, some of the money, but um, the opposition partners wouldn't accept this compromise because they say there have to be clarity around the public protector's office and whether people were obliged to to um, to adhere to her recommendations. Good. So then the Constitutional Court last Thursday, which is 11 judges, they unanimously um, agreed that Zuma had uh, broken his constitutional vows as the pre president and they uh, Rule that he had to um, pay back a, a portion of the money that was um, down to the, the um, it's down to the treasury to decide how much were um, he'd have to pay in relation to the non-security related upgrades. So they would have sixty days to um, assess that, and then he would have a for further forty-five days to pay the money. Um, and on the back of that, the opposition, main opposition, Democratic Alliance Party, they have um, um, set in motion impeachment proceedings, effectively, which are, are um, undergoing today. Uh, for the president to be impeached, he, um, the, out of the 400 members in parliament, the MPs, um, two thirds would have to agree for his impeachment or his removal. <clears throat> but it's highly unlikely that that will happen because the ANC has a, a very large majority in parliament. And about 100, ANC, 100 ANC MPs out of a total of 256 would have to effectively cross the floor and vote with the opposition parties for the impeachment to go through. Zuma wouldn't really have much difficulty putting uh, together some of the, the money to pay back. He's become quite a wealthy man, one understands. Yes, um, uh, his he, he Zuma has uh, created a, a huge system of patronage within the the, the 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 ANC, but he has also allied himself to business people outside um, the party who have effectively become his benefactors. Um, if you go back about um, to his last, about before he was president, it was a guy called Shabir Sheikh who was um, supposedly giving the um, president lots of money. He went to jail for, sentenced to jail for 10 years for trying to um, curry favour with um, officials. But in this time around, it's now a family called the Guptas. It's three brothers from um, India. And they've been in South Africa about 20 years. Um, they have 
not come from a hugely moneyed family in India. They weren't well known, but they have managed to make a, a huge amount of money while based here in South Africa. Uh, Zuma's uh, three of his children w- w- work for them. One of them at the moment, Dudazani um, Zuma, he is on a lot of the, the Gupta's um, companies, uh, board of directors. He receives shares. He's gone from being a, an unemployed individual to being a multimillionaire within a couple of years um, through his, his uh, work with, with the Guptas. Uh, Zuma's never denied his relationship with the Guptas, um, but he said there's nothing untoward about it. Yet, a second scandal that's um, um, swirling around Zuma at the moment is related to the, these, these Gupta brothers. And um, one, the, the deputy finance minister about six weeks ago came out and said that um, he had been approached by Dudazani Zuma, who had set up a meeting with the Gupta brothers. And when he went to meet them, they had offered him the um, finance minister's position if he would um, do certain favours for them in return. Uh, he, denied, or he, he refused it and said it was totally unconstitutional and made a mockery of their democracy. And then he went public. And since he's gone public... Uh, a couple more MPs have come out and said that the Guptas, uh, at various different times, using um, President Zuma's name, um, have tried to curry favour, win contracts, push through um, legislation that's favourable to whatever businesses that they are in. Um, so uh, there's, there's, a high, there's a high level of suspicion that there is a sort of a, a partnership between um, President Zuma and the Guptas and that it's a sort of a win-win relationship um, for the two of them, anyway, although highly legal. He, he wouldn't have much difficulty finding the money to pay, pay back the state. Now, the ANC, which most people here will think of as a liberation force, the clean hands, uh, you know, uh, transform South Africa and all, all the rest of that, the ANC is backing Zuma all the way, it seems. But are there strains within the party and are there strains... Within, within its relationship, for example, with, with important allies like the South African Communist Party and, the, and COSATU, the Labour Federation? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the ANC likes to call itself a broad church, <clears throat> and indeed it is a broad church. Um, there is a lot of different uh, factions within, it, within the ruling party. Um, there are significant strains uh, in relation to people who support Zuma and people who don't. Um, if you look at the party as a whole, what Zuma has managed to do, though, is um, is the, t- the top decision-making body, the National Executive Committee. He he has a strong, strong support base amongst those eighty people. Um, a lot of those people, their jobs and their add-on jobs that they get through government are reliant on um, being bestowed upon them by President Zuma. Um, th- these, these are professional career politicians. Um, so they know if they go against Zuma, they'll effectively lose their income and be sidelined. So a, a lot of the people at the, cent- at the center of power are still backing him. Those that aren't backing him are a lot of the people from Mandela's era. Um, a lot of people from the more financial side um, of government rather than sort of um, political careerists. Um, so you have like Dennis Goldberg, who was uh, went was on trial with Mandela in the 60s. He's come out and spoken against him. You've got Ahmed Kadra, 
another uh, close confidant of, of Mandela is actually one of his best friends who served time on him with Robben Island. He's openly said that Zuma should stand down. Um, but other than that, um, very few people have publicly, individuals have publicly come out. Um, organizations have come out, like the, 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 the army union had to come out and said he has to stand down. People who've been sidelined already in the ANC, they've come out and said that he needs to stand down. So you see it's very much the people on the periphery of the party who may not be um, at the seat of, or close to the seat of power at the moment that are, are, are knocking him. They're, the undercurrents are that there is a lot more people who are very unhappy with his uh, the way he's going out about his business but are not yet prepared to um, come out publicly and um, uh, knock him back. What will could well be um, his downfall is how this all transpires at the polls. You have a local government election later this year, and while local government elections aren't usually um, make or break elections for a president, um, this will be very significant because if the ANC loses a lot of uh, votes here, it's a, it's a very strong indication that come the, the national elections in a few years' time that they could well lose even further. And then the MPs that are being very close to Zuma at the moment and supporting him would be very in danger of losing their positions. So it could well be the local government elections, if, he, if the ANC does badly there, that the um, party itself might move Zuma on after the elections. Don't they don't seem to want to do so before the elections because they fear that to do so would, would have an even worse effect on, on, the, on the polling result. Those elections are in May, May June, is not right? They have to be within 90 days of May 18th. Right. And, and finally, just today, as, as we're speaking, there, there's a vote of impeachment against Zuma in, in the parliament. But it's pretty much a formality, isn't it? The, the Democratic Alliance, which put down the motion, doesn't have a hope in hell in, uh, of getting enough votes. You hit the nail on the head. It's not a hope in hell. There's been two votes of no confidence in the last 12 months. Uh, a vote of no confidence is a lesser uh, vote. He, if he were vote for, uh, uh, a lesser charge, shall we say, if he were to go, uh, lose his presidency on a vote of no confidence, he'd retain his pension. Um, but under the current impeachment, if he were to lose, uh, get voted out, uh, he, would, uh, he wouldn't have any pension, any benefits. He'd never be able to work in government again. But if you look back on the, the trend over the last 12 months with the two other votes, um, the, the opposition votes in no confidence didn't do very well at all. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks to Dan McLaughlin, Clifford Coonan, Bill Corcoran, to our producer Declan Conlon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. 